Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard the voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, Rise, go to Damascus. There you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus." And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. That very hour I received my sight and saw him. He said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of, your, of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, we made a note about the break here between 21 and 22, 22, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. We'll look at that and on into 23 next week. But for today, uh, this is our portion. So let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name, to sing your praises, to open your word and together study, first to understand, and second to obey. Lord, we ask that you'd help us with this endeavor, but that you'd always, and as you do so, consistently, lovingly, and compassionately, would you bring us along to be more like you and less like ourselves. Wash away from us our sins. We repent of them. And Lord, would you... Take care, take trust of the things that bother us, worry us, concern us.
And may we seek first the kingdom of God. Lord, we ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. If you recall from last week, and you were with us, uh, it was quite a, a, a dramatic passage. We talked about how whatever said about Paul. You can't say that the story is boring. Uh, he has gone to Jerusalem against the best wishes of all that love him. Don't go. It's dangerous. They're after your life. He goes. He meets with James. They've got some of those, those who have been listening to misinformation from others about Paul that isn't true. So they've got this plan together for him to purify himself in the temple with four others who are doing so for basically the optics necessary to cool whatever disharmony might exist between not only the believing Jews, but the unbelieving Jews that are teaching the falsehoods. And if we were to add up what we looked at last week, you've got a case for serious disagreements. That's where the story opens. Personal animus from these unbelieving Jews that uh, came from Asia or Ephesus particularly. Slander came from them as well, along with misinformation. And then come to find that there is an eagerness to believe the worst report by the whole group. It ends with a mob. They're shouting away with him. And about that time, the Roman commander of the Antonia Fortress, which is connected to the temple complex by a stone stairway, rushes in, grabs Paul. They're beating him at the moment. And up the steps they go to get to the barracks so that they can sort this out because the pandemonium in the mob was such that he's unable to figure out what's what. And it's at that point that Paul says, may I speak to you? He makes sure he's got his identity right, that he's not this guy who was an Egyptian Jew who carried a bunch of people in the wilderness. They get it all straight, and he gives Paul permission to speak. And that's what we just read. He starts out with brothers and fathers. Hear the defense that I now make before you. That's a a respectful intro. It might be interesting to know that this is the first of five defenses by the end of this book. There'll be four more. And they have to do with uh, Roman officials and the audience of uh, the authority within the vicinity known as Palestine all the way to Rome. But this would be the second time that Paul's testimony is mentioned. It was mentioned in chapter 9. The Damascus Road, light in the, the heavens, the voice. He's blind for a time, meets with Ananias. That's going to be mentioned again, I think it's in chapter 26, for three separate times. That means it's important to repeat it over and over and once more. And then when you've got this man named Claudius Lysias, history tells us that was the commander of this uh, 1,000 men regiment there at Antonia Fortress. Comparatively, with an angry mob, he seems a nice guy. And I only bring it up because there are many commentaries that note the fact that other scholars have said no Roman in charge would have given a man in custody the ability to speak in front of a crowd. Well, that's based on what people know of, of, of Romans, but there's no historical record of this except what we just read. Here's one idea that a, a lot think plausible, and so do I. If it's so loud that he can't figure out who's who and what's what, and they need to retreat to the barracks to sort it out. And his method is revealed later that he will examine him by beating. 
We'll beat it out of him. We'll figure out what's going on. Wouldn't it be easier and quicker if he just hung himself with his own words, if he let the man speak? You might learn what this is all about, right? So maybe that's what he's doing. Sure, speak. They're all watching. And then when they're quiet, that's the first strange thing. You would think that they still want him dead. But we're given a clue, and Luke tells us that they became even more quiet when they noticed he was speaking to them in the Hebrew language, which would have been Aramaic. Why would that be such a big deal? Well, I don't know. Uh, We have language barriers. There's languages all over the world. And then there's sometimes where people might know one or two, but they've got one they prefer. And I came across this in one of the sources I was reading. It was supposed that if a group of Welsh or Irish nationalists about to hear an address from someone they knew to be an enemy to the cause, but instead of speaking in Saxon, spoken Celtic, it probably demand at least a temporary here of goodwill. Hey, something's going on. The man knows our language rather than these Germanic tribes that have you know, taken over. So when you've got Jerusalem under the thumb of Rome and they've brought all of this Hellenized uh, baggage with them, including imposing a trade language on them and so forth. They put up with Greek, but they speak Aramaic. And to hear this man speak to them in the tongue they prefer, that's probably what's going on here. So what we'll do, uh, there may be more, and you could certainly subdivide these and make uh, enough points to keep us here till after lunch. But let's just say we'll go with five developments or five arguments that you could see nested under his, his uh, unified approach, which he calls his defense, the first one. So number one, we're making notes here, and this, uh, this has to do with, with verse 3 and, 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 and forward. He spoke of his Jewish birth, his upbringing, and his training under Gamaliel the most eminent teacher of that time. If you look back in verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, That was the man who was taught by Hillel, who ran the school of Hillel. This is not shabby in the least bit. Um, And then he says, According to the strict manner of the law of your fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. What's the point of saying all that? That's right out of the gate. He's saying, I'm one of you. Uh, All of these things that he's mentioning. uh, He's a Jew, born somewhere else, grew up in that city, so I've been here, educated by your star teacher in the strict manner of the law of our fathers, our fathers. Usually that's what you do. Uh, Someone who gets up to speak to strangers wants to make a point or carry an argument. The first thing he doesn't do is say, you know, hey, uh, I know you're all Carolina fans, but I, I pull for state. Or something like that, right? He's going to want to put them on the same page instead of opposite pages or vice versa. See, you're probably thinking now, why in the world would he bring up state in Carolina? I do have a blue hymnal that's just like your red ones that I've talked about from time to time. I've never brought it out, you know, to sing and just see what happens. 
because I like this job. <laughs> so his Jewishness here is incontrovertible from the things of what he said, if they are in fact true. So he's letting his listeners know that he's one of them. And in fact, by this pedigree, he's outdone most of them in the room. And to boot, he's an expert in the law, which next week we'll find they should have kept in mind when they charged him with breaking it because the, the back and forth is, is priceless. So that's, that's the first thing he did. His birth, his upbringing, his training. He's a Jew, and he's as Jewish as a Jew can be. Second, he drew specific attention to his Jewish zeal for the law. Um, it was as great as any of theirs since he had persecuted Christ. Many of them had not, though they're persecuting him. Look at verse 4. I persecuted this way. So the thing that they're mad about him, or mad at him about, is the very thing that he persecuted to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So all the people that are there can vouch for the fact that this guy was public enemy number one if you were a Christian Jew. Now, this was 20-some, 25 years plus ago, but that's who he was, and there would be people in the room who knew that. In fact, these people that could, could, could vouch for it, the Sanhedrin could testify because Paul worked for them then. They were the ones that wrote the extradition papers for him to go to Damascus and bring those Christians back to punish them or put them to death like Stephen. That was him, same guy. He's saying, in effect... I was where you are standing right now before God opened my eyes and changed me. He's working on his pivot. First is, is we're the same. The second is I was even more hardcore than your hardcore. The third one, though, is going to be the pivot. Paul narrated the circumstances of his conversion, which is entirely due to divine intervention, not at all uh, by any initiative of his own. And I, I know we talk about this sometimes and how a person comes to saving faith and by what means or mechanism. Could it be that they read the scriptures and understood them on their own? Perhaps. Is it usually that you need a teacher most of the time? Can someone come to saving faith without an understanding of the scriptures? No. Uh, but what process does it take? And we all in our testimonies want to talk about uh, the difference between a confession, that's what you'll hear when we have baptism, and they read, I believe this, 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 and this. It's confession of what I believe. But a testimony is what led me in my life lost prior to this point to where I'm now saved. What were all those pieces? Who did I talk to? Was I raised in a Christian home or not? You know how testimonies work. Well, this is his testimony, and he's he's narrating how this works but the glaring fact is he had nothing to do with any of it he's on his way to go kill Christians it's basically described in his words as an apprehension he was arrested hey you've been persecuting me in fact rather than just making you not I'm gonna I'm gonna have you work for me now the church you persecuted is gonna be the church you serve and I'll show you how many ways you must suffer for that. So we see that in verse 6. As I was on the way, drew near to Damascus, great light from heaven, fell to the ground, 
Why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you? Jesus of Nazareth. So he's blinded by a light. Then he heard a voice identified itself as Jesus of Nazareth. So what does this sound like to this group of people? I'm one of you. In fact, in many ways, I was better than you. And one day, here's my personal experience. All that was over, and I made a complete 180-degree turnaround. Uh, we keep going. What is he supposed to do? Rise, go in Damascus where you'll be told. So um, he didn't walk an aisle. He didn't fill out a card. He was blind for a few days. But there's no mistaking the turnaround. Number four. Paul referred to Ananias, characterized as a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all Jews. It was he who restored his sight, told him that God had chosen him, told him he would see the righteous one and be his witness. All that's in verse 12, 13, 14, 15. What's the point in bringing that into the discussion? Well, if you've just got Paul, he's a good Jew. Everybody knows it. Uh, He's been in process of extraditing Christian blasphemers back to Jerusalem for punishment. Then this weird thing happens on the road to Damascus, and that's the last we heard of him for 25 years? No. He's going to say there's this man named Ananias who helped me unravel the experience. He's well respected by all the Jews. He's one of you. And God spoke to him too and told him what he needed to tell to me. So he's, he's building a case for the legitimacy of his of his turn, the pivot. Uh, Let's see, verse 15, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. That's Ananias telling Paul what his job will be. And now why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. So it's not some sort of journey with God. It's an account of a sinner saved through the name of Jesus. So I'm sure Paul's not the same as he rides off blindly, but by the time he gets to Ananias... Repentance is involved, washing away of sins, uh, calling on the name of Jesus. It's not some special conversion. Paul's in this too. He's confessing. He's calling. He's washing away sins figuratively, waters of baptism. Uh, These verses have tripped up a few. I I think they're rather straightforward. But fifth, one, two, three, four, five... Paul shares his vision, which came to him in the very temple that they have said he has defiled, in which the Lord had said that he would send Paul to the Gentiles. And this is where everything comes to a halt. We've, we've moved through this quickly. But look at verse 17 one more time. When I had returned to Jerusalem, so sometime after the Damascus Road experience, Praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. That right there is a mysterious word, right? I, I, don't, I don't know if we had... Raise your hand if you've fallen into a trance lately. Uh, it's a little strange to us. But dream, another word, vision. This happened to Paul a time or two. We, we've been through some of these. But what he got from it... 
and saw him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. So that, that's the direction from the Lord. Verse 19 tells us Paul's assumption of what is meant by that. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I've imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Uh, in other words, Paul's saying, I agree wholeheartedly. This whole place knows who I am. Uh, so for me to say, mm, I don't feel the same way again, is, and, and then start preaching for the man that I've been imprisoning his followers, I don't think it's going to work either. So verse 20, he gives what some think might have been the thorn in the flesh that Paul carried around, the memory and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. That's kind of Paul's confession here. And in verse 21, he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. We've got work to do, but it's not here. So put another way, and, and here's where we, we kind of need to put our, our thinking hat or cap or whatever they say on um, what others considered apostasy really came to Paul as revelation from heaven that's the point of, of the whole thing Paul is telling his accusers his defense is plainly that not only did God speak directly to him but God is the one behind his ministry to the Gentiles that, that's why I'm doing this. I didn't cook this up on my own. I didn't think, oh, wow, I love this so much. I'll take it to the people that Israel hates and give it to them because it's, it's so good. No, he's explaining to them. It wasn't once. It, it, and it, it wasn't twice. And it wasn't just me. It was someone else. And I didn't come out of nowhere. You know where I've been. But this divine revelation came to me, a bright light and the voice of none other than the Jewish carpenter himself. And then in the temple, I'm given clear direction, get out of Jerusalem and take this to the Gentiles. It's clear. And that was the last straw. This is the cumulative point of his whole defense. This isn't my will. This is God's will. This isn't my defense. It's a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his direction that the Gentiles get it too. And it was at this point that the mob found its voice again and demanded his death. And that's when they start throwing dust in the air and pulling the clothes and all that stuff we'll read about next week. Um, up to this word, they listened to him. Uh, so what's the big deal? Let's start to pull this apart. And, and we'll do it in two stages. And um, first of all would be a why. Why in their eyes is Paul an enemy of the state? Why, why, why is he to die? And we could talk about the similarities between him and Jesus 25 plus years earlier. We did a little of that last week. But in their eyes, proselytism, and that's to, to make a proselyte. Take someone who's not Jewish or Hebrew, bring them into the culture and baptize them 
manner of speech into the customs and the language and all that type of thing. Old Testament's full of these. Pick one. Uh, there's Ruth. She was a Moabitess. She marries Boaz. She's actually in the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus. She's Gentile. So is Rahab. Uh, so is so many others. But they became proselytes. They would immerse themselves into the Hebrew culture with the law and everything else. Most of the time they were called God-fearers. And there's, there's lots of them. That, to these people, is fine. So long as they become a good Jew. We really don't care what you teach them, Paul, because we don't believe that Christianity stuff. But we do not believe and we do not buy that the law and the prophets are given over to anybody but the Jews. So their problem was with evangelism, which was to say making Gentiles into Christians without first making them Jews. We've talked about this a number of times, but this, I think, is where it seems, uh, I don't want to say shine, because shine's a positive. This is, this is dark. The reason why they're so upset about it is because it's the same as saying that the Gentiles are the same as the Jews and that they both need to come to God through his only son, Jesus, and on identical terms. Which is to say that the law's been fulfilled and it's not a big deal anymore. Isn't that what they were saying to Paul? There's a bunch of these Christian Jews who think you don't care about the law anymore and that you tell everybody it's not important, which is not what he did. But they were upset about that. And then you've got the ones that don't believe at all saying he's, he's a double enemy. Not only is he teaching Christianity, but he's saying that Judaism is no good either. So that was their problem. And last evening, putting final touches on some of this, uh, came downstairs to eat dinner and was asking uh, my wife, who's with the nursery this morning, she's sometimes a great person to bounce things off of. I said, I need an illustration. I'm usually good with these things. But how do you illustrate in another scenario a group of people who are so prejudicially blind but doubled down in their ignorance that they can't see anything else? And Corey looked at me and said, have fun with that. Because basically... Any other illustration would have to do with another group of people who are so prejudicially blind that they're, 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 they're ignorant in their own problem. But how do I bring that up and not know that I haven't just insulted another group of people like this group of people is insulted because they're so sure that their way is right when really God has made it clear that it's not. Uh, I think probably the best illustration is just to rehearse the, the, the story itself. It starts with a God who made a world and everything in it for no other reason than he wanted to. He didn't have to. And then with the birds and the fish and the animals and the water and the land, he made a man and a woman in his own image with a moral compass, the ability to choose, gave them one rule. If you break the rule, I'll know you're disobedient. If you keep it, I'll know you're, you're obedient. They disobey. Does God just blow the whole thing up? No. He starts working with them through Adam and Eve 
and their children. And then Noah, that's another big uh, event. And, and you got creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. And then you've got this, this uh, personalities, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then 12 tribes of Israel. You'll be my people. I'll be your God, but I'll keep you sequestered from the rest of the world for one reason, to be a blessing to the nations, right? I want to redeem the world that fell apart in the Garden of Eden, but I'm going to work through one group that will keep themselves separated, right? And just keep fast-forwarding through the whole story, through the period of judges and kings and prophets and priests. The covenant's always reminded, I will be a blessing, And then by the time Jesus gets here, one of the first things he does is turn the money changer tables over in the temple. Why? Because the temple is the place where God meets with man. It's a house of prayer. And in the court of the Gentiles, of all places, you've got these merchants changing money and making killing doing it. And that's the first thing that the God-fearers see when he sees the people who are supposed to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. Jesus flies hot, tears the whole thing up. This is not what God meant. Because by then, it's very clear, the privileged group of people that God said, I will use as a distinct, holy people, my people, to show the rest of the world my goodness, has become stingy and won't share that news with anybody but their own kind. They called Samaritans, which were half Jew, and half Gentile dogs. What do you think they think of full Gentiles? They're barbarians to them. And to think that we're going to hand over the treasures of our culture to the likes of them with a fellow who says they don't need to go from point A to get to point Z. They just get Z, the reward and everything. So, yeah, they're upset. And then you mix in all their traditions and it makes it even worse. Because the traditions weren't even the things that God told them to do. But they demand that be done of these people on their way to God. Hey, we'll tell you about God and how good he is. Once you do what we say you do, how we say you do it. And we're happy with it when you're done. Now this is not just a Jewish thing. Although God himself was the one who called them stiff-necked people. But I think right behind them are... uh, some of his children in America with their church the way they like it. Don't change it or we'll show you the door because God told us how to do this because he made us like the way we do it. And since we like the way we do it and God told us that it's cool, we're going to force it to stay this way forever. Traditions are great, but they're, they're not the mechanics of the gospel. Uh, do you know why churches meet at 11 o'clock, most of them? Because over across the pond, they had to milk their cows first. So most of them started meeting mid-morning. But you try to put it at 10.30 or, or Saturday night, you might get some pushback. Ask them why, because we've always done it that way. They don't even know it was because of milking cows. <laughs> So what that is is a tradition that moves around, right? And there may be some stuff that if we find out, you know, somehow somebody mentions it in the cemetery 100 years after we're dead, we'll roll over because it shouldn't be done that way, right? 
Paul's done an impressive job as to keeping things simple, right? And these people, the Jews, have done a marvelous job at making it complicated and trying to simplify it back down to what the gospel truly is. His head's on the chopping block, pretty much. Um, so as far as way of illustrating the predicament he's in, that, that, that's about as close as I think uh, we could get and to do so helpfully. So if we're going to put this in a, in a what's in this for me uh, format, that's what was, what about now, where we are. And we'll do this just by looking at, th- at three quick observations as to what Paul had done and then why it wouldn't be applicable to us as well. First of all, it seems Paul had to give a, def- a defense. He was compelled to give a defense. What, what was that environment? Serious disagreements, personal animus, slander, misinformation, and eagerness to believe th- the worst report. Well, that's where he finds himself. So he's going to defend whom? Himself or the gospel? Now, remember what he told them he was told to do. Ananias said, you are to receive speech from the voice of the righteous one. That's a reference back to prophesied history. As a witness. And Paul's still taking that witness category seriously. This is not about his self. He talks about his background. He talks about his education. That's not in dispute That's just to anchor, hey, I'm one of you. What he is defending is the gospel and how he was told by the voice of God that the Gentiles get it too. So I think when we look at Paul's defense, it should be seen that defending the faith is just as important as preaching the faith. That's what Paul did with most of his life is preaching the faith, but it doesn't mean that at times you don't defend it too. Now, does it come down to a time where you defend yourself? Haven't seen that as much from Paul. You might have to look real close because most of the time it's obvious he's defending the gospel, not his personal self. Uh, Good grief. In our culture and with uh, social media, what it is, if you live to defend your own person, you're going to work yourself to death. It's an endless, tireless thing. I mean... I. What was the television show where the guy just kept on saying, I get no respect. I think that was that Dangerfield crazy guy. Sometimes you might feel like you don't get any respect in your own home or any respect in your own church. Before you get bent out of shape, personally speaking, determine what you're, you're defending. Yourself, motives, traditions, or the gospel in its fidelity as it's supposed to be. Part of the same process, I believe. Defending the faith, preaching the faith, I think it's the same process. But Paul had to give a defense. Should we give a defense? Now, if somebody wants to smear Wake Chapel, is that the same as smearing the gospel? I think people have said ugly things about this church. They'll probably continue to. I've heard people say ugly things about staff members are yours truly uh, there's more to do in a day than track that stuff down somebody starts making some noise about the gospel itself 
we'll have to address that. That's God's honor, not our own. And that sometimes is the very thing that decides whether or not we do something, we say something, uh, we change something. I think it's a good word. Paul's been a good model. All right, another. Paul's defense was most often ineffective. And his defense is of the gospel, not his self. If the gospel doesn't always get a good hearing, why would a personal defense get one? Most of the time, uh, people will let you know with their rolling eyes. Nobody cares about how you feel about what somebody said about you. That's, that's just human nature, right? But what is sad and what we need each other for, and especially a copy of God's Word, is when our defense of the gospel isn't effective. And sometimes, personally speaking, when we are defending, perhaps, say, our family or our child, our spouse's uh, commitment to living their lives based on the truth of this old book, some of it we're just going to have to know that, hey, they rejected Jesus, they rejected Paul, they're going to reject us. Not everybody's going to see this like we see this. Most people won't. Most people didn't as far as Paul. But does that mean it wasn't effective for God's purpose? I hope not. I mean, we're, we're spending an entire Sunday morning. You're all dressed up sitting here listening to the account of Paul's useless defense, right? Oh, it's useful, all right. Luke's writing it down, inspired as it is. And for 2,000 years or so, we've been talking about this. And it might be that the defense you give, offhanded, feel like you bungle it, go home discouraged, mattered in some means. Somebody else will come along, water that seed. God will bring the increase. Maybe you're long gone. And the reverberation through this world and into eternity, God knew about all along. All right, let's look at one more. Paul saw his defense as an opportunity to preach Jesus. He got to Jesus of Nazareth, didn't he? He started with his own pedigree. That's to get in the door. But he gets to Jesus, and he always does. He always takes the opportunity to preach Jesus, no matter what. I can remember uh, this would have been Jerry Falwell. He was the one who said on... TV one time. I'd preach in hell if they promised to let me go when I was done. <laughs> I always thought, that's his way of saying stuff. You know, he doesn't really mean that. That'd be the end. You can't go. You, if, if, if you're saved, you can't. And if you're not, you can't get out. And, you know, but it got a laugh. And I think I understood what he meant by that. And I, I think Paul may have joked in the same way. I, it's not about me. It's not my life I'm worried about. I'm going to get this ball as far down the field as I possibly can. And we'll look at a different tactic altogether next week. But the question is, this is what we'll leave with. Do you take the opportunity to be a witness for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ when the door opens, even if it's in what seems like a loaded question format? It's not easy. This guy seems to be the professional. We always like to say, Paul's never scared. Nope. He said he was in tears and trials and anxiety. Anxiety here, anxiety here, anxiety here. 
It's one thing or the other. He's, he's, he's in the ringer. The strangest of places, usually the Lord will, will, will do this, but there's a, a couple of things that need to be true and present for you to perceive a tap on one's shoulder. This is the time to speak. And you need to be caught up uh, as far as your sin accounts, probably. You need to have some regimen of, of a daily devotion. Uh, you need some track record, I suppose, as far as Scripture with a modicum of maturity. But if all those things are in the right place and you ask the Lord routinely, Lord, give me an opportunity to speak for you, you'll be shocked at when the Holy Spirit rushes over you like a tidal wave or like a faint summer breeze. I don't know. But you'll know it. You'll just know. I sh- I, 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 I've got a window here or a crack or a wide open door. You know, it's not often that some people come like like the eunuch from, you know, Africa, uh, reading Isaiah. Uh, what do I do here? What must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer. A lot of times it's like, um, you wouldn't believe my week and just is dumped. What would you do with that? And maybe they're asking you that because you look put together. I don't know. Um... What did we talk about last week as being this generation's theological tripping hazard? Sexuality. Let's just say it comes from that field. Somebody asks you, what do you think about this, that, or the other? You know, there's a way to handle this stuff. And do so with humility. You know, I, good grief. That, that hundred people can answer that question a hundred ways. And don't we all know it? it, it it's a mess. But if you have a few minutes, you might not now. But I could tell you what I believe, but it's a little, it's a little more in depth. In fact, I'd prefer to back up quite a bit and just tell you off at the beginning, I, I believe the Bible. Now, I, I know there's 2,000 years you know, uh, minimum here of, of church history of what people have been doing with that book and under that book and because of that book. and uh, But the first ten words do it for me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where I start with a really big God. And I've looked all over and I can't uh, f- figure out a, a, a better way to answer the big questions I've got in this life than to know that it's not an accident. It's by design and that this God wanted us to know What's in this book? And I know we've got to trust people that he spoke through and then trust that what they said was copied down. I know this is a big thing, but I actually believe that. And because I believe it works that way, I believe God gets to say how he created everything and then how everything is supposed to operate. And, you know, you can work from that. But you don't stop there. You might answer the question and then go even further. And as far as your question as to whether or not it's right or wrong or moral or immoral, uh, all of us are immoral. We all ate the bite of fruit through Adam and Eve. I am the chief of sinners. I'm not saying that this question you asked me is, you know, to shoot in their direction. We've all been shot. That's what John 3.16 is all about. 
and a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son to do for me what I could never do for myself and actually be righteous. I believe these things. So you, you went from a loaded question to Jesus, starting with Genesis 1.1. It, it's not rocket science, but you, the hardest part is, is the first thing you say rather than brush it off and change the subject, right? And it helps if you know the person, and it helps if your reputation fits all the stuff you're fixing to say. But if you act differently than what you're about to say, they're probably going to throw you out and keep moving. Thought so. That's called uh, spiritual roadkill. Call yourself a Christian, but don't act like it and then try to witness. Mm. But do it anyway. God will help you the next time. He didn't save you and die on a cross to do so, to keep the secret and to keep it away from others. He died for the world to know it. We've got a good model here in Paul, and we've got more to study in the weeks to come. So with that said, let's us bow in prayer. We'll sing, and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday, another installment in the book of Acts, the story of your word going out as far as the gospel message and you bringing people in as they believe. Lord, would we have the guts to pray a very dangerous prayer? Lord, would you put me where you want me to be a witness to the truth that I know? for whatever good it serves the kingdom, for your glory and in thanksgiving for the grace that saved our souls. Would you be God and would we be available? And Lord, I ask all this in the precious name of Jesus and his sinless blood. Amen.